0: cinema foundation movie podcast i am your host titus and today i'm joined again for the postmodern conservative series by my friend scott beauchamp we are talking about his book did you kill anyone which is already out in bookstores and you can find it online on amazon just go and buy it to hear the story of a young man becoming a man in the military and becoming the thinking man a scholar a man who reflects on america and americans Scott, I loved your book. Thank you for sending it to me. Thank you for joining me for our second podcast about it. I am, as I've had the occasion to say before and never tire of repeating, grateful for your friendship and for our conversations. Please say hello to our audience and let's start our conversation about honor in the modern world.
1: Sure. Thanks for having me again. It's always a pleasure to sit down and talk with you. And uh, I value our friendship. And I think this is a wonderful podcast. And I'm always happy to be on it. Thank you so much, Scott.
0: Now, on to our discussion, I think of the absence of honor in our culture as the theme of your book and your last chapter is on honor. I think of the consequences of that absence as explained in the titles of previous chapters that deal with ritual and hierarchy and community and tradition. I think we'd understand ourselves much better if we understood what our yearnings for honor are and what happens when they are disappointed. But I think it might be best to start from what has replaced honor in our lives and in our societies, which is celebrity. And these industries are somehow tied up with the baby boomers and their success in the culture, which is now turning into catastrophe. I have a friend who compares the hippies to the grunge generation. He says everything that started with Woodstock ended with Seattle and it was pot and fun and the beginning and peace. And at the end, they were all killing themselves with heroin because all these fantasies that celebrities could change the world and being a celebrity could make your life meaningful. They don't pan out. Mm, yeah. Uh, and, you know, then there's the generation that grew up in this disillusionment. There are no more silly ideas that you can recycle celebrity every four minutes on MTV like when I was a child none of this stuff really matters anymore and people are grouping pretty desperately for something some way to deal with the fact that there's nobody out there helping
1: you and you're kind of needy yeah even the even the notion of celebrity just seems so sad and empty it's just one of the most depressing concepts that we ha- that we're still clinging on to dragging around that dead idea with us it's so so sad yeah and i think that by itself is a sign that This is the end of something
0: that everybody can be a celebrity on YouTube or something like that. There used to be this sort of idea that in America, you can make it. And that, you know, little Joe Average, little John Q. Public could somehow, by the stroke of luck or by divine democratic election, you will be chosen to be the next big thing. These days, it's some guy whose tweet goes viral and who says, you know, donate to my Patreon or... Right. It's so pathetic. And you see, again, I mean, it's a lot of needy people out there. What are you going to do? Yeah. So there's so much emptiness. And I think a lot of this has to do with an experience of how things shift. What can you really rely on? What was there 10 years ago that's still there now? What is there now that you're confident will still be there 10 years from now?
1: So, I suppose prescription drugs, I suppose, are, are exactly. what's there. Yeah. yeah. There you go. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the elite answer to... The American
0: problem. Therapy and pharmacy. Mm-hmm. Well adjusted people who <laughs> learn to stop screaming in the void.
1: Adjust yourself to the new reality. <laughs>
0: exactly. Exactly. You gotta right. become well-adjusted.
1: Obedience born
0: of resignation. I guess it's one or two steps better than, you know, fantasies of zombies and bloodshed in the streets or civil war <laughs> something like
1: that's all I it Yeah.
0: I was asked by my friends at Long Liberty to review the new Yuval Levin book As I was thinking about Plato's dialogue on moderation, the Carmides, which struck me as stunningly appropriate for America. So, if coming from this battle, is just the beginning of the Peloponnesian world, it's going to end up with Athens wiped out. All that empire gone, baby. But they're enthusiastic at this point. So, there's this strange horizon for the dialogue. And the two people he's talking to are one an adult, one a young man, they're going to be tyrants at the end of that war. And that's the future of this dialogue on moderation, the most immoderate politics. The third guy in the picture is a radical Democrat partisan who's going to die in the fight between the Democrats and the tyrants. In the present of this dialogue, there's this young man who is so astonishingly beautiful, everybody's in love with him. From children to old people, everybody's just struck by how beautiful this young man is. And Sir so Socrates suggests that he himself had an erection when he saw the young man. <laughs> So there's this crazy moderate eroticism now, and in the future, there's going to be this crazy political immoderation, and, uh, you know, America in the 60s and America now, something like that.
1: I was just going to say, I, I, don't, I don't see the connection. What are you, uh, what, what are you getting at? <laughs> Yuval Levin's book is
0: called A Time to Build, but it's all about this stuff. It says that, like it or not, now we're in a situation where people no longer respect their institutions. They don't feel I'm a team player, I'm on a team that's worth playing for, and this is my role. Mm -hmm. They want to abuse those institutions. They want to use them as platforms for their own fame. And so with the media, so with politics, so with many other things. Happens in many churches, and it happens in many families. And nowadays you see one of these crazy mothers who takes her child that she's convincing to become transgender at the age of 10 or something to the democratic debate to say hello to all the democrat contenders and ask a question about tolerance. Oh my god. Maybe this woman is trying to have revenge on a child who's taking her life away from her. Right? <laughs> oh man. Like, you know, it'd be hard to press to say anything good about, say, the parents of Michael Jackson or of Britney Spears, but this seems somehow even worse. Uh, yeah yeah. <laughs> These crazy things are happening now at all levels, a desire to abuse whatever institution you have at hand to get something for yourself because you can't really believe that the institutions are good for something. That you're good
1: if you help it along, if you help other people through those institutions that you share with them. Yeah, there's kind of a double vision when it comes, right? There's this cynical, like, idea of using institutions. And then there's also this idea that that's really all that's left, right? It's all we have are these institutions that actually don't work. Exactly. It's desperation that has led people to this exploitative and self-exploitative
0: way of living. What else is there? Mm -hmm. I'm going to hang on to my dignity for what? Right. Byung-Hul Chan calls it auto exploitation. And there's a lot to it. Yeah, yeah. Democratization of the media and democratization of desire. Anybody could be a celebrity. Mm -hmm. You just have to exploit yourself. You know, the New York Times is trying to help this 14-year-old black girl to take ownership of a dance she created on the world's last social media platform, TikTok. (laughs) It's imitated a billion times and nobody's giving her credit. You just did a dance move on TikTok. What credit do you really expect? I mean, but the girl wants to be noticed and recognized as an important, you know, influencer or something at 14. Because what else is there? It's not because we're old or jaded or whatever. It's the 14-year-olds the, the feel the same way, apparently. so That's that's problematic. And of course, you know, you see it's sort of uh, America 2020, the death march to the death match these sorts of <laughs> dying, pilled up guys like Joe Biden and you know all the other 60, 70 year old Democratic millionaire boomers out there talking to the youth. Go home, just talk to your grandkids until you die or do something normal. But there's nothing. There's nothing. Nobody has anything. Right. No, no, no. You better, you, desperately that the public attention will somehow save you.
1: Buttigieg strikes me as a boomer in a millennial costume. You know, I don't think he has anything to offer either.
0: If liberals had any sense of humor or memory, they would be calling him the Stepford Wife of Paul. Right, <laughs> yeah. He yeah. Is the combination of Bush's Christianity and Bill Clinton's Ivy League education and the small town story and also he's a Christian but also he's gay but also he's been on this sort of fake war that uh, rich people get up to where they don't even have to go through
1: basic training because you know
0: just <laughs> there for six months and <laughs>
1: yeah and he was only there for six months he you know I mean obviously this is something after my own heart here but he um you know what he did during the war was he was a driver for a, a higher ranking officer he was like a lift driver I mean that's that's all it was. He's the bachelor
0: of politics, and there are a lot of elites who hope desperately that this guy will be able to sell Americans on the fact that elections are like the bachelor. Isn't right. he an eligible bachelor? You know, don't mm. stare at how creepy this guy is. There's something, <laughs> everything in his life is fake. There are just yeah. too many boxes that are checked. Exactly. And that's what the guy is. He is Heartland, but also Harvard, but also all of these other things. As if these things could go together, or if they did go together, they would end up looking like this. It's the last gasp of this desire of elites to say, we'll give you the bachelor, just vote for him. He's young and handsome. So the reason I was rambling about all this stuff is that I thought that your book fits really well with an aspect of what Levin was saying. People need to have belief in their institution and to serve their institution. And he says that the army used to be really unpopular in the 70s because of all the Vietnam stuff and has since become Mm -hmm. the most popular institution in America, whereas everything else has become untrusted for Mm -hmm. often very good reasons. He says, somebody tells you this guy went to Harvard. You might think he's a smart guy, but do you think he's a good man? Now, somebody tells you he's been to West Point. Don't you kind of believe that he has good character? he learns to serve others not to be so selfish and all that i think people would say yeah that's that's the way it is and so this is the thing that struck me that a lot of what i was thinking about reading your book is about what does it mean for people to put their trust in a service they're doing to not be so goddamn selfish or clueless i don't think people are selfish because they're wicked I they think they're selfish because they're
1: scared and they can't trust anybody else Yeah, no, I I think that I think there's definitely truth to that. But I think something that sort of adds to the kind of selfishness that you're talking about, which is not just selfish and unique actions throughout the day, but a a selfish orientation is that it's our culture. I mean, it's the culture that we have self-consciously created for ourselves. And, you know, we've used different arguments to explain it away or to justify it. Uh, I'm thinking of like the fable of the bees, you know, and and even going back to the beginnings of theorizing about what would become the capitalism we live in now, where if everyone's selfish, well, that will benefit all of us in some way, right? Maybe there's, it, it does in some way, but also then you have an entire civilization of selfish people and can that sustain itself? And are people not just happy, right, but fulfilled? I think that the kind of selfishness that you're talking about is depressing in the worst way because it's so shallow. I mean you're creating spoiled people and you know like a spoiled child is never a happy child they never get what they want and then they're happy there's always more they're insatiable and so i think we've cultivated that insatiability within ourselves and that's why we can't be happy there's a profound sense of happiness is too weak a word fulfillment purpose in finding yourself in service in service to others and it's true that, you know, we have rational minds as well. Like the, the service can't be, it's hard to say, well, I, you know, I dedicate myself to my job at McDonald's flipping burgers. It takes a really unique stoic personality to find fulfillment in something like that. We need to have this idea that what we're doing also contributes to this like larger culture that sustains us somehow, that we're part of it and it, we're enmeshed in it. To my mind and everything I've experienced in my own lifetime, we've done everything to convince people that they're liberated from that. You're completely unmeshed. you know? you're not connected at all to some sort of larger thing that you owe a duty to
0: yeah i think that's a very good point that uh, struck me again and again reading your book that you present yourself as a young man learning how to serve other people how to trust other people how to be a part of what other people are a part of because there is a common good there that takes some discovering and of course takes a lot of work but there's a certain combination of trust in the institution and maybe that's just easier in the military because you know you're embracing a way of life it's not just a contract that might expire in three months or you might get fired tomorrow or whatever but it's also besides the trust is learning certain things and practicing certain things specifically things that relate you to other people So much of life is formalized and it adds conventions. And I think this is why Americans are attracted to the military, because it's the only place that anybody can go to have something like what life was like before modernity and capitalism and liberalism. There was a lot of poverty, but they had certain good things, one of which was you knew how to treat other people and how they will treat you. Yeah, that's absolutely
1: true. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, there are ranks in the military. When you see someone else approaching, you know exactly what rank they are. You know what they do. You know what unit they're in. And so you know how to approach them and how to interact with them, how to engage with them. And the sort of guesswork is taken out of it. And I think Americans do have, maybe sometimes it's a romantic notion of what that could mean. But also, I think it's important to realize that we hunger for certain kinds of hierarchy within our soul because we realize that it's a real thing hierarchy does exist in the world. And maybe the hierarchies we create socially are flawed, of course, like anything else. But I think it's important to realize that if we don't admit that it's vital to being completely human, then we're fooling ourselves.
0: Yeah, I mean, it is a basic of human nature as obvious as an experience in America on an everyday level as anywhere else in world history that sometimes you need somebody. Sometimes you don't know how to do something that's important. You're going to need somebody who can do it better. You're not going to have to admit that somebody else is better than you at this, and you're going to need their help. And some of this stuff feels like it's a contract. You can buy and sell services and goods. But some of it doesn't feel that way. Because some of the stuff is not about, can I get somebody to make me a website or a cup of coffee? It's more like, can I live with other human beings? What am I going to do with my life? What's going to happen when I grow up? What part of the world will I be? There are certain needs we have that are, Hierarchical at uh, such an important level because they're relational. It's about who's going to teach you how to be a man. It's about all of these things that uh, eventually make you think, I-, I sense at some level that I'm not prepared, that I'm not fully developed as an adult, that I'm not really a man, and I want to get there. Right. I want to be in some sense myself capable of that experience that I have when I see somebody in an upper level of hierarchy. That is to say, the experience of myself going up, mastery of
1: myself so that I become better. Yeah, no, I think that's a really important element. And thinking just in terms of my own experiences within the military, knowing that you could rise to the level of your competency or, you know, incompetency, as some people would joke. But still that there was that movement that movement was possible and also it's important to realize i think that when you are actually living day to day in a functioning hierarchy it isn't necessarily such a primitive one-for-one ranking of people right it's not like a private in the military is somehow worse less than a captain it's just they have different jobs they're expected to do different tasks i mean i think there's either a hierarchy of parts of a car right like to how it works or how well it works You wouldn't say that, like, well, the engines are better than the tires, right? It doesn't make sense. But you would say that, you know, certain parts are subservient to other parts, because that's what's necessary in order for the car to function. And I think it's true in the military as well. When I was a a specialist, I had a different job than when I was a private. When I was in charge of people, when I had a team of people under me, I was responsible for them in a way that, uh, you know, we don't have many experiences like that in the civilian world. Whereas, You know, if they messed up that was on me. That reflected me. Like the person in charge of me wouldn't get mad at them. You'd get mad at me because they're my responsibility. They're my people. And so along with hierarchy goes this sense of responsibility for one another, for the people in your chain of command. Those are your people. You're responsible for their well-being. You're responsible for training them, for making sure they show up to where they need to be on time. And you're taking care of them as well. You know, it's not, everyone isn't so mercenary. It's not so much like, I'm looking out for mine and, you know, these people who work on me, well, they're just my subordinates. They just make less than me and do what I tell them. No, we're a team. It's my job to make sure you're okay. And I think, again, going back to what you said about the sense of this in the civilian world and why it breaks down is because it's not explicit, I think, or as explicit in the civilian world that what you're doing has actual significant ramifications. Whereas in the military, you know, end game, if I mess up or if I betray some sense of this order, someone could die. So there's very, very real consequences, right? Whereas like, you know, someone who is working again, like at a fast food place, like, why should they care if they do a good job? You know, like, what are the, what are the consequences? And it's because I, I think that we don't have a way of looking at the world that would create moral or existential, or whatever, cultural consequences for them. They're not, they can sort of carry within themselves innately.
0: Yeah, I, that's a very good point. The civilian world is such a strange, complicated mess of moving parts at various levels of complexity that almost every experience is an abstraction, actually. You don't know what the consequences of what you do are. People up top can't feel what the consequences will be for people at the bottom. People in this place don't know what it's going to do to people in that other place if you make this or that decision. It's very easy And in a way, maybe it's necessary to just not care so that you don't get this dizziness that you have no idea what the consequences of your actions will be. Whereas what you're talking about is a situation where you know what the consequences are, you know what the duties are, you know what the relationships are. All of these things you can put a name to and you understand also what the experience is. Whereas in civilian world, we use words like relationship because we don't really have names for what those relationships are. Because we don't have the experiences. We don't have the things that you're supposed to put a name to. Any relationship is a relationship, but all relationships have names if they are real relationships. If you're talking about a relationship as a relationship, it's not real. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, that's a good point. Somehow we are abstracted away from any experience precisely because we are not in this situation where you know where you stand to other people and what good thing you're all doing together, what are the difficulties you're supposed to face and how you're going to do it, what demands that makes on organization? Who's going to be doing what? And, and that means I can contribute something of my own and also that I depend on other people contributing these other things and they add up. Right. Well, there's a lot of what we call work or having a job or what it is that gets you money in the civilian world that could never pass that test that you could never describe in terms of me and a bunch of other people are doing something in an organized way that's obviously or plausibly a good thing produces something good for somebody else. Well,
1: does it? Right. Yeah. No, I think what you're describing seems to me like a breakdown of hierarchy, of course, and a breakdown of purpose, but also a breakdown of community. I mean, what you're describing is what would be like a real community where there are parts working together. What's Coleridge's phrase? Unity and multiity which to my mind is the definition of a community. And again, you know, this is Not to say that the United States military does a perfect job of embodying any of these things. But for me, it was just a way to experience some of these things, even obliquely. And more importantly, coming back to the civilian world, to really sense their absence. Even if they were imperfectly experienced in the military, their absence is just, it's noticeable.
0: Yeah, I think of it as a transition between a pre-democratic and a fully democratic life. There's an old Socratic joke from the Republic that in a democracy, you rub shoulders in the streets with the dogs and the horses. (laughs) There's no real difference. People just, you know, elbow each other out of each other's ways. That's how it's gotta be. It's busy, it's crowded. Big cities, bad manners. But we also need not just this kind of freedom to go where we want to go if we're willing to elbow people out of the way here and there or duck. It's also this other way of life that we need where it's more like having manners That is to say, you're supposed to behave in this way, to this sort of person, and every time you do, you can expect a certain answer. It's easier to get to know people in a preparatory way, in a practical way. Before you even know somebody's name, for example, you could know that you should treat them in such and such a way, and expect a certain treatment in return. That makes life predictable. The more I see the sort of stuff that makes drama in the life of young Americans, like I was telling you before we were recording, ghosting, it's emotional abuse, it's right. bad manners, but it's there because people feel that they themselves are the ghosts. You just float into and out of other people's lives, mostly without seeing them. Mm-hmm. And there's no past and future to that. So why should you say goodbye?
1: Right. Yeah. I think you're right. And I think what you said before, it's, there's a reason why there's a connection between honor, especially the kind of honor and honor cultures and pre-democratic societies in the notion of hospitality i think that sense of honor which as you said is part and parcel of pre-democratic societies and cultures goes a long way into implicating a sense of stability uh, social stability you know when you knock on a stranger's door that stranger isn't going to immediately open it and kill you you know that It's a way of pushing back a little bit of the anarchy of the world and yeah. it seems like one of those things that just got thrown out I mean, I, I keep going back to the idea you said was pre-democratic. And, you know, a lot of the experiences in the, in the military are it's not a democratic society. You know, it's a community that has a lot of pre-democratic values. And I have to say, I've been reading this book, which I'm going to be reviewing with a wonderful title. Dostoevsky reads Hegel in Siberia and bursts into tears <laughs> from a Hungarian author, I'm completely going to butcher his name, but it's Lajlo Folgeny. Anyway, in the titular essay, he talks about how when Dostoevsky was exiled in Siberia, he most likely read Hegel's lectures on history, which notoriously began by, you know, ruling out all the places that are outside of history, such as Africa. And it was actually beautifully written, but it's like this crazy thing. It's like, what does, you know, Hegel know about Africa? And it's just like, well, it's no role in history. And also Siberia, he throws on the end you know, in this essay is about all these things that when we try to systematize, which is a function or I think, a desire of modernity to systematize reality in such a way that like, well, okay, well, these things are outside of history. They don't belong in the system. You know, we can't have melancholy. we can't we can't be melancholy, We can't have, you know uproarious joy. We need to keep you sort of in this weird little middle ground stasis. We can't have things like honor. And I think it, it's interesting because what I get from it is that in this need, this rush to systematize, You're actually destabilizing human culture in a very profound way. In this rush to avoid any sort of pain or suffering, you're creating vast amounts of suffering.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. There's a sense in which our elites are continuously running experiments on the rest of us. And sometimes we pass with flying colors, you know, we invented the car or something and now we can all use it. And sometimes it leads to catastrophes and sometimes it's just really mixed and we can't quite know. I think about what happened after the end of the Cold War as we ended up with the internet and that ended up with social media because we needed another experiment. And the elites in this place that nobody gave a damn about before, Silicon Valley, now are running experiments on the souls of our children and of ourselves and we'll see how it turns out. We used to be super excited about it and now there's a lot of people panicking for a lot of different reasons from psychology to politics to conspiracy stories about foreign affairs or whatever. All of a sudden, you know, a lot of dark passions are out because Mm -hmm. people are thinking maybe the experiment isn't working.
1: Well, it's telling that lots of these Silicon Valley people have their own children in schools, which are um, wireless or unplugged schools. Mm -hmm. I think that really says a lot.
0: Well, they run another experiment. (laughs) Right. Because that's the thing. The elites live in one world and the people they experiment on in another world and they have different rules. Mm hmm. You know, it's going to be a very hard thing to deal with. It seems to be causing this strange political crisis in so many countries that supposedly are all democracies and you should calm down. But the people aren't calming down Mm -hmm. because it's a democracy and they think, you know, it should be working for us and it's not. And so they feel they have a reason to be very very angry and that indeed is this strange difference between those of us who have to go on with life at some level to do with how we were brought up what we were taught to expect and on the other hand people who live in a world where they think a lot of this stuff you can just change you can just change how people believe how people behave how people speak all of this stuff could be up for grabs well what if it turns out you're not that good a juggler or you're not that good an engineer to re-engineer things Mm-hmm. then, you know, we, we have to deal with the fallout somehow. And there is indeed always this sense that there are people running the experiments, and there are people being experimented upon, and you don't necessarily get a choice as to which one you are. It's just there, you're going to have to somehow deal with it. And sometimes you get resign yourself, sometimes you get very angry. But either way, we are somehow stuck with this, because between us and the experience, there is always going to be technology that's right and without these technologies you couldn't have a bunch of geeks in silicon valley change our lives for the rest of us a few people would get angry and you know they would kill them or scare them away but Mm -hmm. with technology there's nothing you can do it starts with indeed whether two-year-olds are going to have a tablet or not that's going to change certain important things in their lives right people have to take their chances or just see how it turns out but technology means that our elites live in one world and the rest of us live in another I think we can't fix this problem any more than we can fix the problem that when you go to the doctor, you hope that he has this super knowledge that you yourself will never have and he can save you.
1: Right. And at some
0: level, that's what people hope from elites as well. Maybe there are these people with all the Harvard educations, these people with all the Silicon Valley computers, and they can somehow fix what's wrong. That's a problem. And I think people behave and believe these things because, indeed, they do not feel that they themselves are honorable, that they themselves have honor or could ever acquire it. They can never find some ground on which to stand and not be bullied around by all these things. If everybody in the back of his head is thinking, you know what? There is something happening now and it might disappear tomorrow and it might be disrupted by a disruptor. There might be some creative destruction. They'll be very creative for that guy and maybe very destructive for the rest of us. (laughs) Right. Who knows? I don't know. I don't know what's coming. What can I rely on? Can I rely on myself? Probably not. This creates problems. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, figuring out that certain parts of our lives, family, and everything tied up with family, from raising children to marriage and eventually burying your dead, all of these things are not transformed by technology. You can ask the doctor to heal your child if he's sick. But you cannot ask the doctor to make your child impervious to sickness and eventually to death. This part of nature you must simply surrender to. So of course with, you know, when your kid learns that his dog dies and so does his grandma and eventually dad will have to die too. You have to square with that. So You have to realize there are somehow pre-scientific, pre-technological, pre-liberal experiences that are crucial to how we live our lives and try and get us out of that, more of what we need to know to build our relationships.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. And I I think those experiences and the promise of elites, especially Silicon Valley type elites who deal with technology, it goes back to what you said about selfishness and fear. There's a promise, a false promise, Given to us by that class of elites, that they'll eventually be able to overcome these chthonic experiences like death and sadness and and you know, all the things that really define or mold the human experience or flesh out the full human experience. There's a promise that they'll be able to control it. Stick with us, you know, weather the storm. Give your kid a tablet. Shut up, and we will eventually find a cure for you.
0: Yeah, and this seems to apply to more and more things that, you know, there's a lot of people in parts of the country that we don't talk about, never shows up on the news, and tough. And if you're lucky enough to not be in one of those parts of the country, just count your blessings and do what you're told. So with everything else, there's more and more of a sense that there's no America, we're in it together and it's going somewhere. There's a bunch of Americas and some of them have a future and some of them don't. Just count your blessings if you're one of them and don't look as the others recede softly into the past. Mm-hmm. There's this suggestion that we're running out of the future. There may be enough for some, for elites and for their minions. And other people just gonna have to, you know, suck it. That breaks down whatever there might be by way of national solidarity in a nation of this vast size that seems like many different nations or at least a bunch. Nevertheless, that national level problem is experienced directly by everybody who knows that life is passing him by somehow. Right. There's nothing at the smaller level to hold on to. That is indeed a very big problem. I've been thinking a lot about this in our previous conversation and since that because your book is both about being a soldier and becoming a scholar, becoming a man in both senses of the word at some level. You also have to think about what's happening in America, what's happening in the world. It's not just you thinking about how am I going to be the kind of man I want to be. It's also this relationship to your country, to other people, and to the times. It made me think, what sources of moderation really are there? If you are lucky enough to have signed up for the military, you will have a sense of fear and a sense of shame. Building these things into people, fostering them in the people who already have them, are amazing ways of telling people not to go crazy. Right. There is no way to deal with that well in public, partly because... Our fears tend to make us shameless, and our desires also tend to make us shameless publicly. We have gone way past the point of oversharing. (laughs) I don't even know what to call it, and frankly, I like to stay away from it a lot. I suppose many other people will decide likewise because it's crazy. But we've gotten to this point out of desperation. People aren't even for sure that they are the human beings they suspect they might be or wish they might be, unless they show everybody else, so to speak but you can't do that to your own life. You can't strip for the attention of everybody else. It's your life.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And and one of the problems I think that goes along with this, and I think it has to do a little bit with the oversharing that you mentioned. I think there's an overemphasis on the literalization of human experience in our society. With that comes a de-emphasis of metaphor and eventually ritual, right? And this idea that's more than an idea that life is too vast and too complex for us to fully ever be able to comprehend it, all our ideas about it and then everything else as well. And we can only ever get it at it obliquely, right? We can only ever engage with the vastness of reality in these these ways that are they're very oblique and really pre democratic because they're pre systemization of, of the world or the hubris of systemization. And one of those things I think is ritual. One of those things I think is hierarchy. And so, you know, you wonder, what are the stabilizing forces? How do, how do we get back there? I think that there are ways, and, you know, call me an optimist, but I think that a civilization that overemphasizes the literal doesn't really have much longer to live because it to articulate its idea of itself anymore. And so I think that people in little ways are keeping culture alive, maybe through, you know, religious ways, artistic ways. And really, I mean, that's my hope, is that, it, you know, these things will find a way to live beyond the current maelstrom
0: yeah i think that's a very good point that at this highest level there's a real question about how are we going to be able to be a bit hopeful about the future it is our metaphors and our rituals that reassure us that we'll be doing this again and that what we are doing gets at a dimension of being human that's fairly fertile fairly rich. It will allow us to move on with our lives because we get some ideas we get some practices and they will work out especially because we are stuck with modernity we're forever thinking about getting something new we're forever forgetting old things it's all the more necessary to have some parts of life that aren't fully caught up in that mm-hmm. that offer a kind of reprieve and the balancing going from that highest level of how are we going to get some stability as a civilization so that we're not dizzy down to the basic level of growing up i look at my niece i look at children i think how do these creatures learn how to be human Well, they repeat stuff a lot. They just pick something up and move it from here to there. And they break things apart to see what are they made of. It's because they don't know what things are. They have very little knowledge, if any. They have almost no concept of causation or any of these things that make human beings intelligent. They're constantly worried that everything comes into being and disappears in magical ways. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. It's perpetually surprising. Well, you grow up and if you have what people call a structured life or good upbringing or however you want to put it, what it means is to develop virtuous habits. If you get enough of that, you understand that things behave with regularity, that actions have consequences and they are tied up. It's not arbitrary, it's not fickle, it's not crazy, it's not magic. It's nature, it's how things are. And that's deeply reassuring. It tells you that it's not all chaos. It's not all just waiting to go to hell. If you close your eyes, it'll be fine. Indeed, children do learn to fear the dark at some point, but then learn also to grow out of it. It's fine when it gets dark, it's not death, it's not your terrors, it's not your nightmares, it will be fine. And all of these things have not just a psychological dimension, but an intellectual dimension as well, and a moral dimension. Intellectually, they're supposed to reassure people that you can acquire knowledge about things in your world to get on with your life. And morally, they tell people that you can trust other people. That they are not crazy either. Having therefore enough of ritual and hierarchy in life tells people how they can trust each other and how they can do things together. And these are all learning experiences. In my travels in America, I have even heard prisoners obliquely get at the fact that jail saved their life. Mm-hmm. It was the first time their desires were thwarted in a systematic way that focused them on what is it that's really worth loving and having in this life because they were deprived. And at the same time, I assume the discipline, painful as it is, mattered because they were talking about bottoming out. Mm -hmm. Finally, the world stopped seeming like this kind of crazy theme park ride of desires and fantasies and they're coming and going and you're moving up and down and everything is swirling around you. That experience ceased when it became focused into I am now suffering the pain of all these deprivations and I'm also aware for the first time that this is really and truly what I desire. I don't want to say many good things about the prison system in America. or What I'm saying is that uh, punitive justice and restorative justice do work. We all know this about ourselves. Having an experience of making a bad mistake and then having to live with that and trying to make it right. To pay for it, to make amends. To accept that is to say the duties, to accept the guilt, to accept your failures, and to resolve at the same time to be better.
1: Right. Well, I end my book with a point that it's too bad that I had to join the military to experience all these things. And I think I'd say the same thing about these prisoners. It's too bad that, you know, there weren't resources culturally already out there for them. They had to actually go to prison to experience the, you know, thwarting of sort of anarchic desire.
0: Yeah, that's very
1: true, and indeed, this
0: is the question. How are we going to get people to sense these basic things, to connect things that often seem to be a matter of intellectual history, honor culture, or the pre-democratic past from way back when, the old world as opposed to the new world, or things like that. How are we going to connect them to stuff that we can feel, at least in this negative way, our sufferings, mistakes, fears, so that we understand what we are looking for? And to begin indeed to change from laws to simple things, little towns, how people behave in a way that they can trust each other more. And I think part of that is realizing that we are not crazy to want these things. They're natural. They're good for us. And further than that, accepting that sometimes you're afraid and that's a good sign. You don't want to do that bad thing. That sometimes you're ashamed and that that is a good sign. You don't want to debase yourself. And then that you can look for whom could you trust? What sort of thing is trustworthy? These things are important questions that structure all our, as we call them, relationships. And that we have to be more serious about them, not leave them up to chance. I think that's very important and it requires indeed a massive shift of attention and the way of thinking. Reading your book, I was constantly comparing it with what I hear from other young people. I know people who are very successful and very serious about all sorts of professional things. And for example, when you ask them about what are they going to do about dating or love, they're openly saying that, you know, this is up to chance. Blind fortune or fate will have to decide, you know, the most (laughs) important aspect of their life as an adult. That's, I think, because, well, with jobs and there are institutions that will help you out. And mostly you have to obey and conform to succeed. But in these other cases where supposedly you have freedom and choices, it's just chaos. And there isn't anything to tell people how to change the way they think about things and what they actually do. Since this is not a matter of speculation, it's a matter of practice. All the knowledge you're ever going to acquire is just there to improve your judgment and your actions. So you get better things, you live it like a better person. Right. This has been a great conversation, though. It's been really good. Thanks for joining me again on the podcast. It's been really good talking and joking around about these crazy times. It's always useful. It means I'm not the only guy seeing that there's crazy stuff happening around. It's very reassuring in a certain way. And, of course, joking about bad things has this character. It reassures you that we're still here and we're not nuts. It's, it's, it really is bad. So thanks a lot for joining me. And uh, as we wrap up, please tell our audience the title of your book and where they can find it on Amazon and everywhere else.
1: Well, thanks so much for having me again. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. And my book's called Did You Kill Anyone? And it's from Zero Books. And you can find it on Amazon, the publisher's website, or IndieBound.
0: So folks scott beauchamp did you kill anyone look it up it's a book about the military that's also a book about america well what it means to be a young man growing up and what it is that you aim at growing up trying to become a man the one secret thing in america that we have to become men as we grow up um so scott thanks a lot for joining me and uh, all the best until our next conversation
1: thank you